pastors here, and it's a privilege to be able to open up God's Word with you. Uh, we're in Mark chapter 2, and we want to encourage you to follow along in your copy of Scripture. So whether or not you uh, brought your Bible, uh, Faith Community Bible Church, we love hearing the pages turned. Uh, we're in a day and age where we'll even count it if your screen is swiping uh, to the right page in God's Word. Uh, but we want to uh, encourage you to follow along. And so Mark chapter 2 is found on page 837 in your pew Bible. And so in case you don't have a Bible, and that could be our gift to you, uh, and encourage you to uh, follow along. We're continuing our series on uh, Jesus Rediscovered, and who is Jesus, and does He really matter? And one of the issues that is always at stake when you have someone who's as famous as Jesus is do we rightly understand why He came to this earth? Each leader, each famous person, uh, we think we know something about them. Uh, so we have tabloids. It gives us a sense in which we, we know who they are. And in our culture, people are famous just for being famous. Uh, but we know that it's important to get uh, the right message across. At times as leaders, you often feel completely misunderstood. Uh, and people missed your point of what you're about. And so let's just do a little bit of a pop quiz this morning with some kind of famous individuals and what you might guess would be their message of why, uh, what they were trying to get across. I'll start with kind of probably an easy one, though in our day and age this has become more controversial. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., what would you say would be his distinctive message that he proclaimed? Civil rights, Civil rights uh, equality, right, uh, of person. Uh, if I were to ask you the same question about Mother Teresa, what was Mother Teresa's distinctive message while she was here on earth? Mercy? Yeah, compassion. Maybe children matter to God, especially those that are uh, poor children, especially matter to God. What about Gandhi? Same question. What would be his distinctive message that he brought while he was here? Peace. Right? That, that, that the greatest way to develop political change would be through peace and not war. If I was to ask you what was the most distinctive message that the Lord Jesus Christ claimed while he was here on earth, what would you say? Some people might say his moral ethic and his teachings. A savior. Some people might, might say love. But what we're going to see from God's Word this morning, especially in Mark chapter 2, is that Christ's message, which makes Christianity distinct, is that God forgives sins. That Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive us our sins. That is the distinctive message of Christianity. It separates it from all other religions where there are some religions that don't even mention the word forgiveness. Where the idea of a God who is forgiving would actually be more of a slander than a compliment. And here we see that though Christianity does offer a good moral ethic to live by, though Christ is certainly a good example, he comes bringing a message of forgiveness, that he come into this world to forgive sins. And so as we go back to Mark chapter 1, what we see happening so far is that Jesus' fame is growing. Crowds are drawing near him. People are following him around. And uh, he is demonstrating to these crowds that he has the authority to teach. Mark chapter 1, look at verse 22 with me. As he's teaching in the synagogue, verse 22 they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. So the crowds are following him for his teachings. The crowds are also following him because he can heal diseases. Uh, he, he can heal a leper. He can cast out demons. 
And they're saying, wow, what kind of authority? And up until this point, all the way through Mark chapter 1, the crowds, the scribes, the Pharisees, everyone that's kind of considering who is this Jesus so far, their reaction has been positive. But Mark chapter 2, it represents the very first opposition. And Mark likes to shoot straight. He's quick, he's to the point, he treats like an adult, he doesn't mess around with what it's about. And Mark is letting us know right now that Christ has been trying to stay silent in some regards so that he's not misunderstood. Look with me at Mark chapter 1, verse 25. As he cast out demons, he tells them, be silent and come out of him. Because why? They were identifying him. We have to deal with this secret Savior. Go down to verse 34. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. What? Trying to make sure that what people's expectations and what they thought matched what his message was all about. Up until this point, The reactions are positive. Christ is not going to be crucified uh, because he's a human who's casting out demons. Christ is not going to be crucified because he's a human healing people's diseases. Nobody argues about whether Christ was truly human. But if you want to get into an argument, see when Christ claims to be God with the authority to forgive sins. Here, Mark chapter 2 verses 1 through 17, and see how it turns into an attack and a defense as Christ claims the authority to forgive sins, the authority that only God has. And when he had returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so there was no room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men, And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He he is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Now he went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners.
Do you see the two purpose clauses in all of this? The two purposes that Christ came to this earth? Look with me again at verse uh, 10. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He, he wants us to know, and then look down at, at verse 17. I came not to call the righteous, but who? Sinners. Those that he knows that he could forgive their sins. And so this morning, we're going to see that because Jesus Christ came into the world to forgive sinners, we're going to see the priority that, that he places on forgiving sin, the assumptions of forgiveness as well as the evidence. So those are our three points this morning. In case you're following along and you want to know uh, when I'm wrapping up, the priority of forgiveness, the assumptions that are inherent in saying, son, your sins are forgiven, as well as the evidence. What kind of evidence does he give us to know for sure that our sins can be forgiven? First of all, let's look at the priority. As you study Mark chapter 2, and if you were to consult any commentary today or, or, or any, listen to any message online, you might be amazed at how many people uh, love talking about everything in this passage except for forgiveness. There's tons of great messages, better than I could ever preach, on how you should be friends. And how it is the friends, you know, it is these four friends that carry the paralytic to Jesus. So there's all kinds of messages about being evangelistic. Carrying your friends to Christ, even if they don't want to come, bring them. You also have tons of chapters, tons of ink spilled on just the nature of a house in the ancient Near East. Was it Christ's house? Is that where he was? How did they get up there? Did it cause damage? And how much did it cost the owner? What was their house made out of? But there isn't the same kind of interest in the main point, which is Christ has the authority to forgive sins. And that has been his priority from the beginning. And so what I learned from that is, there are tons of things you can say in a sermon that will keep people interested, maybe even keep people coming back, but absolutely irrelevant to what the heart of the message actually is. And Christ from the beginning, his priority has been to preach the gospel, to preach the message that he can forgive sins. Look with me at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 speaking about what Christ came into Galilee doing. He came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is preaching the gospel from the beginning. Mark 1, 22, we already read it, but he was in the Sabbath and he entered the synagogue and he was teaching. And they were astonished at his authority. Mark 1, 38 if you go over there, and he said to them, let us go on to the next town. What, what is he going to do with the next town? That I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Christ had to prioritize his work. We struggle daily, don't we, with trying to prioritize what do I need to get done today? Just imagine if you had the competency in the ability of God, and then going, what do I need to get done today? Then imagine the pressures of being famous and having everybody else tell you what you should be doing and what your priority should be. He should be healing people. He should be raising the dead. He should be comforting the sick. So Christ had to establish that his priority was to preach the gospel. And it was a priority that was predicted even before he was born, right? If we go to Matthew, Matthew tells us that an angel appeared to Mary and told Mary to name him Jesus. And what does his name mean? Matthew 1.21 says, You shall call his name Jesus... Why? For he will save his people from their sins. When John the Baptist wants to prepare the way for Christ, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who does what? 
takes away the sins of the world. That's what, that's what he came here for. Luke tells us, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. In case you think it's just the Gospels and not the rest of the New Testament, Paul says this in 1 Timothy 1.15, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. The message from cover to cover is that it is amazing that we have a God who forgives our sins, and it's a priority even in Christ's earthly ministry, but it leads the crowd to be astonished. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. Mark chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Here they come, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. It would seem obvious to anyone that's all the first Mission Impossible ever. Okay, so here's this guy getting lowered on a bed out of a rope. If you think a crying baby is a distraction in church, can you just imagine someone coming through one of those, you know, vents there coming down? We'd all be freaked out. We'd probably run, scream. Who is that guy? It would stop. And we're all saying, I know exactly why that guy's here. He can't walk. He's paralyzed. I, I, I recognize that guy. He's been sitting uh, at that corner for so long. And so we all believe that we could immediately recognize what his greatest need was. It's to walk, to be healed. But look at what Christ says at verse 5. It astonishes the crowd. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Such a pronouncement, I believe, would just jolt the crowd there on the spot. I mean, everyone is saying, hey, this paralyzed man who hasn't had a word to say yet, I bet you if you were to ask him, hey, why did you come to Jesus? Why are you here? I'm sure he'd say, I just want to get up and walk. I want to see what these legs can do. I don't want to go to hell south and get rehab. I just want to be able to told walk and go home. But the paralyzed man, his deepest desire was not really his deepest need. Christ sees through the external, goes to the internal and says, Son, you're mistaken. You're coming to me thinking that you know what your deepest need is. But you got to let me address that. Your deepest need is not your suffering. Your deepest need is your sin. Friends, don't miss it. That's what we're doing this sermon series called Jesus Rediscovered because how many of us come to church for the first time just like this paralyzed man, thinking that we know what our deepest need is only for Christ to say, son, friend, you're mistaken. I've had the privilege of being a pastor here for 10 years and I could tell you of numerous stories where people have come, come at first what it would seem sincerely, come with maybe their marriages on the ropes and saying, Lord, Lord, help me with my marriage. Maybe others that have come here when they're going to get serious about God uh, do because of a, unemployment. And then their marriage dissolves and they disappear. Or then they get the job that they've been wanting and they disappear. And you have to ask yourself, is always what I come to Jesus for actually not for God himself, but for God to give me my little Savior. You see, these people at times, they reveal over the long haul what their true intention of what they thought of who Jesus was and what he came for. I'm going to come to church so I can just get help to get over this little hump so that my marriage can work out. I'm going to come to church to get a little bit of help to talk to God, to kind of maybe even some things out to say thank you, and maybe God will provide a job for me. And as soon as we get that little Savior... The thing that we think is going to bring us contentment in life, 
we realize we don't really need God anymore. He was just there to be a genie in the bottle for us. But Christ says to all of us this morning, does your deepest desire really match your deepest need? You're mistaken if you think that you're coming to me for any other reason than for you to be reconciled to God. And I know that if we were to meet the paralytic again, let's say the paralytic came back down from heaven and he was given a choice this time. He got, he got a perk, didn't he? He got both. He got his sins forgiven and he got to rise up and walk. But let's pretend that he doesn't get both this time. He comes back from heaven and he's given the choice. Would you prefer to be able to get up and walk for the next 30, 40, 50 years? But now that you've seen heaven and you've tasted it and you've seen what peace with God really is, or you can have your sins forgiven. Who do you think the paralytic would choose? Forgiveness of sins is the greatest gift. If the hurricanes in our nations shout anything at you, it is how a hurricane can help eliminate your distractions. Just think right now, what is the biggest problem you have in this life? And just imagine if you were in Florida and you thought your biggest problem was how to redecorate your house, how to redo your kitchen, your long commute to work, and how to maximize your time in a car. All of a sudden, a hurricane sweeps into your life and you begin to realize what your deepest need is. Relationships. Are you safe? Are they alive? Things begin to come crystal clear at what matters. And Christ comes on the scene. He tells us in Mark 1, and the heavens rip open, never to be the same again. And Christ is saying, are you sure you know what your deepest need is? Our deepest need is forgiveness. And our suffering is never as great or as serious as our sins. Which leads us to understanding here our second point, which is the assumptions that are laid within this idea of forgiveness. Really, in order to understand how amazing it is that Christ prioritizes forgiveness over everything else, we have to turn and look at ourselves. It's not just about what he came and who he is and what he came, unless we understand that he did all of this for us. So we turn from Christ now to what do we learn about man? And look with me at verses 6 through 7 as we see what the scribes actually get right. And a couple big things that they get wrong. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, the, obviously, they don't get the main point right, that Jesus is God and that Jesus can forgive sins. But what are some of the things that they do get right that even our culture could learn well, these guys have some better biblical worldview than our secular society. They, number one, they understand that everyone needs forgiveness. Who can forgive sins but God alone? It implies that forgiveness of sins is something that we need. And in my pastoral experience, I haven't met a single person that hasn't dealt at some level with guilt and anxiety. We preached the gospel at Preston Lawrence's funeral just last week. God has given us a platform to share the gospel with how many sudden, tragic deaths we've had in the churches here. And in one sense, we are, we are exhausted. And in one sense, we are weary. But in another sense, we have had more people in this church to the gospel with than ever before. So we praise the Lord for that, but we're also in sorrow. And, and we shared the gospel, and I met this lady out there in Palmer Hall. You could just tell that she wanted to talk. And uh, she goes, you know, I'd like to talk to the pastor sometime. Can I, can I take your card? I'm like, I don't have a card, but let me go find one. And so we, we found something to kind of jot down, you know, who we were. 
I said, you know, it just seems like you're really anxious. Would you like to talk now? No, 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 no. No, I, I'll call you later. I said, well, sometimes the Holy Spirit's working in our life, and we just need to respond now. Are you sure? No, no. I, I, maybe a different time. I'll, I'll be in touch. I said, okay. 30 more seconds goes by. Hey, can we go up in your office and talk right now? The guilt and the sharpness and the keenness of what she had experienced and the gospelness that she had heard and that she wasn't right with God. She goes, I just need to talk to you after all. And she wanted to pour out the sins. She wasn't trying to hide them or minimize them. She just wanted to say, this is what I've done. They get it right. People need forgiveness. They also get it right that we need to be forgiven from sin. What do they say? Christ says in verse 5, son, you're what? Your sins are forgiven. They get it right in verse 7. Who can forgive what? Sins but God alone. Sin needs to be forgiven. That's a concept that is not generally agreed upon today, is it? People get nervous when they hear that they need to be forgiven because it presumes what? They've done something wrong. Right? We live in a day and age where people say choice is the best thing. Choice is a good thing. And nobody has the right to tell me how to live. I should be free to choose how I live, here's the last part, as long as I don't harm anybody. And if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, and you're still struggling with that belief, and that's where you are, can I just show you, even from your own belief, that I should be able to choose however I want to live? There is no God. There are no morals. As long as I don't harm anyone else, do you realize that even your sentence there, as long as I don't harm anybody else, means that we have to agree on what harm means and how tenuous that is. Your freedom to decide what you want isn't a self-correcting thing that is somehow going to make this world a better place because what if I think no-fault divorce is harmful and you think no-fault divorce is actually a really good thing? Unbeliever secular mindset, you still have to come to this issue that there are sins and that we have sinned against God. No longer does forgiveness mean what it used to in our world. I get that. Now, sin is redefined as being offensive. We say things like, I didn't mean to offend you. What does that really mean? So there's no more talk of sin. I did this was wrong. Would you please forgive me? But I didn't mean to offend you just means what? I'm sorry that you consider that offensive. It's your problem. You're too sensitive. But Romans 5.12, let's go over and see Romans 5.12 just to see what God's Word has to say against our culture that struggles with this aspect that I would actually need to be forgiven. There's something that's actually justifiably right and wrong. There is truth. There are morals. Romans 5.12 tells us, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. We see the consequences of sin. I know it's a hard message, but we're not going to cling to Christ as the forgiver of our sins and want Him in our life if we don't see our need. We need to be forgiven by the Lord. That's the last thing they say. Who can forgive sins? And here they get it right. But God alone. David said in Psalm 51, 4, against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Forgiveness of sin is God's way of paying the penalty 
for what we are due Him due to our sin. Colossians 1.14 says, In Him we have redemption. In Christ we have redemption. He purchased the price for our forgiveness of our sins. So sin brought a debt, and the, Christ purchased, or the cross purchased redemption. Colossians 2.13, In you who were dead in trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of the debt. Do you hear that? that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Sin brought enmity. The cross brought peace. Sin brought death, but the cross, it brings life. God cancels our debt. He forgives our sin by having Christ pay for it. He made him who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might be called the righteousness of God. If you're here this morning, there's probably one more group that hears this whole concept of forgiveness, and they just say, you know what? I take forgiveness for granted. You've probably heard this quote. Maybe not sure who you got it from. I had to Google it to see who actually said it. But the poet, Henrik Hein, once wrote, God will forgive me. That's his business. And it's this attitude that we take for granted, that of course God will forgive me. I'm not that bad. My sins aren't that many. And we forget that we are born as nature sinners against God. Deserving His wrath, separated from Him. And so if forgiveness is something that we take for granted, it's probably because we haven't thought too much about our sin, or often enough, or deep enough about what it is that separates us from God. And so John Stott said, We shall never put our trust in Christ until we have first despaired ourselves. Did you hear that? We'll never put our trust in Christ until we at first have despaired ourselves. Christianity is a rescue religion. When someone is drowning, do you read them a manual on how to swim? Would that be helpful when they're drowning? The Bible pictures us as drowning in sin. And Christ doesn't come as a moral teacher coming to read God's law to say, this is how you get out of drowning. No, what does Christ do? He goes to the cross and he drowns in our sin, paying our debt to give us life. He rescues us. Listen to how Peter talks about it. Peter is probably the one that gave Mark all of his info, and so it's great to compare Mark with Peter. But Peter says this in 1 Peter 2, 24. Christ himself, he bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin, and live to righteousness by his wounds, right? He takes it on, we have been healed. Or perhaps 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Have you been rescued by Christ? Do you see all the assumptions that are in forgiveness? And lastly, let's see here the evidence. Christ makes it his priority. You have to know some things about who God is and who you are and why you need forgiveness. But lastly, we need to walk out of here knowing that we can be forgiven. And Christ humbles himself, I believe, and gives us great evidence for that by this very simple question. But I think we could spend tons of time in our small groups this week talking about it. Look with me here at verse 8. And immediately, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves... He said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, 
To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Can I ask you that question? Which one's easier? He kind of gets them. You can almost answer it both ways. In some sense, right? In, in one sense, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, right? So if I saw Rachel and I say, Rachel, your sins are forgiven. She's like, oh, thanks, Pastor Josh. Really appreciate that. But who are you to forgive me of my sins? I mean, how do I know for sure? So you, so sure, you can say it, but there's no way of validating it for Rachel. But if there was somebody else that was in our foyer who was paralyzed, and I said, rise, take up your bed and walk. Within a couple of seconds, you would know if I had the authority, right, if I had the power to actually get that guy to get up and not go to Hell South and get rehab, but to actually get up and walk and go home and run and jump rope and do, uh, play game with the sun. I mean, that would be very obvious. And so Christ says, which one is easier? What do you think? And he humbles himself here, and he says, you know what? You doubt that I can do the invisible. Let me show you that I can do the visible too. So he looks at the man here in verse 10, but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and he immediately picked up his bed, and he went out before them all. Here's a guy that couldn't get an aisle to get to Jesus. I bet you they parted when he was able to walk. What do you think? No problem getting out of there that time. <gasps> and they just part. But don't miss the point. Christ is giving evidence. So if you are here and you think, wow, those first century people, they were so gullible. They would believe anybody and anything. We today, we have science. We have education. We are so much further along. Of course they believe that. We're more skeptical. No. Christ says, I want to give you proof that I am God. And in case you're tempted to not understand this, there's a phrase here. We're trying to assume nothing as we go through this series. Son of man. If you hear that phrase, many of you might not know that it's Mark's favorite uh, term for Christ, and it's Christ's favorite term for himself all the way throughout Mark. And son of man might have an air of humility about it. He doesn't call himself the son of God. We'd call that like, wow, that is a large claim. Is son of man a humble title? Is it a title that helps us focus on Christ's humanity, that he's lowly and meek and mild? No, it's not. You have to know that Christ is quoting from Daniel chapter 7. If you want to go there, you can. Daniel 7, 13 through 14. Hear the authority that is given this person called the Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given, listen to what was given him, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Is that a humble title? Nope. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Christ calls himself the Son of Man again in Mark chapter 14. And look with me at verse 62. So flip over to Mark chapter 14. Pages are turning. Mark 14. Let's look at verse 62. And you will see the authority that is inherent in this claim that Christ is claiming to be God. And Jesus said, I am. 
and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And guess what? Even at that point, they get it right in a sense that they realize what he is claiming. He is claiming deity. So look at verse 64. You have heard his what? You have heard his blasphemy. What's the charge against him in Mark chapter 2? This man blasphemes. Who can forgive sin but God alone? Since sin is primarily against God alone, only God alone can forgive it. And Christ is claiming to be God. And they are charging him, and ultimately he gets crucified. Not because he heals a guy, not because he casts out demons, because he claims to be God. And so this morning, friends, if we're trying to figure out who is Jesus and does he really matter, Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Who do you say that he is? He is either a blasphemer or he is God. There is no middle ground. If you'd like to know more about who Christ is and you're struggling with those doubts, we have a couple of gifts for you, one of which I'd like to encourage you. Maybe you have a relationship at work. Scott Hammond is doing a conversational apologetics class, which is how to have conversations about God in the workplace, on the soccer field, uh, you know, in the gym, wherever you have your neighborhood uh, that you live. And these are just little booklets. It's a small side. It says, who is Jesus? Maybe you have a friend that isn't quite sure. They've heard a lot about who Jesus is and who the world thinks he is, but they know what the Bible says, and is the message clear? Give you one of those. I'm going to sneak out this door. I'll meet you at that one. But if you're here today and you are someone who is really struggling with this, this is the full-size version of that in a book form. It goes into more detail. We only have a, one of these. First service took the majority, and, uh, and I can order more. But if you say, you know what? I'd like to know more of who Jesus is. Read this, and I'd love to meet with you. You don't have to, but I would love to meet with you and talk about uh, who you think Christ is based upon the scriptures. As we end, I just want to encourage you that Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if his priority in the New Testament was to forgive sins, even though he is seated at the right hand of the Father right now, clothed in glory and power, his desire is still to forgive sins. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come. I just wonder if there would be rejoicing in heaven this morning over one person that says, you know, I've been arrogant. I just haven't wanted to ask for forgiveness. You know, that is like in a normal human relationship. I just don't want to say I was wrong. And are you outside of heaven's gates because in your pride you're not willing to humble yourself and accept these truths that, God, I need forgiveness? Or perhaps... You're here and you have taken your forgiveness for granted. Christians, we stand amazed when we are first saved. How could he forgive me after all I have done? And what has convicted me most in this passage for myself personally is the last verse. They went away amazed and they glorified God. Have you shared with anyone recently your story of how you've been forgiven? Do you still have the awe that God himself, the God of heaven, the God of all glory and perfect holiness, would forgive you, a sinner? Have you become comfortable with that or comfortable with any sins that we would trample upon those saying, oh yeah, of course, it's God's job, of course he'll forgive me. I know 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We did that for granted? How as Christians can we stir one another up to remember the overwhelming grace 
Yes, it's free, but it's costly for Christ to forgive us. As we end, I just want to end with God's word, Acts 13, 38 through 41. says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. The law made you guilty, but in Christ you can be free. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Could you believe that God forgives you? Is that an astounding claim to you? I'd love to hear your story this week, take you out to lunch, hear about that, and also love to hear about how you share that with somebody else. Let's stand and we're going to sing our closing hymn, Just As I Am.